We're going to be this evening, uh, we'll start in 2 Thessalonians. It's one we all spend a whole lot of time in, I know. Um, one of Paul's first letters was the first epistle to the Thessalonians. Uh, he wrote it while he was living in Corinth. And the contents of the letter are really reference a lot about the end of days, about the return of Jesus, and encouraging the Thessalonians who were enduring a lot of persecution and hardship at the time in their faith. And it's funny sometimes how best intentions and encouraging words can kind of get misinterpreted because what was happening when he wrote the second epistle is uh, there was some wrong teaching and some kind of things taking place among the body that wasn't productive. Uh, Because of the teaching about the imminent return of Jesus, some had begun to stop in their Christian service, were just kind of not doing what they were supposed to, just thinking that Jesus would return. They kind of stopped living and started waiting. And, and Paul writes the second epistle to say, listen, I told you that there would be a bunch of signs, that lawlessness would increase, that there would be a great falling away before Jesus returned. We haven't seen those, so let's kind of get back to it. And, and the encouragement would be, lest Jesus does return, find us kind of slack in the assignments that he is given us, and, and the second epistle is basically a prayer that that doesn't happen. So let's pick it up in verse 10, knowing that kind of the context of all this discussion is Jesus' return. Paul says, when he comes to be glorified, and I'm reading out of the Amplified, so there'll be a lot of extra words. Uh, when he comes to be glorified in his saints, on that day he will be made more glorious in his consecrated people, and he will be marveled at and admired in his glory reflected, in all who have believed, who have adhered to, trusted in, and relied on him. Because our witnessing among you was confidently accepted and believed and confirmed in your lives. With this in view, we constantly pray for you, that our God may deem and count you worthy of your calling and his every gracious purpose of goodness and with power may complete in your every particular work of faith. Faith, which is that leaning of the whole human person on God in absolute trust and confidence in his power, wisdom, and goodness. There's a couple of things in verse 11 that I'd like to kind of use verse 11 as a jumping off point to talk about. The first part, that our God may deem and count you worthy of your calling and his every gracious purpose of goodness. You know, we talk a lot about deliverance ministry in our church. It is probably the greatest ministry God has entrusted to us and has really given and entrusted to this body something different in the area of Christian counseling. If you ever experience sitting down with someone who needs breakthrough and and you have that opportunity to speak with them about deliverance and about uh, God's goodness and how he has a name for them, you kind of see an astounded look, especially if they've been to other counselors, because there's just no mention in what God has given us about coping mechanisms, and everything is about supernatural, God-released freedom in that process, finding those original lies that have been authored in us, and God removing those by His goodness and power. You don't hear that anywhere else. And that part of deliverance that God has given us is, we think of it sometimes as the main goal. But really, it's kind of the step to the main goal. 
Because the other thing that God has given us in deliverance ministry is the understanding that God has given us all a name. That he's written a name that speaks volumes about him and who he intends to be through us. And to me, that is the ultimate goal. When anybody sits down for deliverance ministry is to take them through all the muck and mire so that it can be dealt with by God. But the the full and ultimate goal of it is so that they can discover who God created them to be. I was kind of wondering how to explain this properly, and the Holy Spirit just said, I didn't stop at the cross, did I? The cross was necessary. There was a debt that had to be paid by Jesus. He was the only one that could pay it, and we all had sin dwelling in us. It wasn't just like it was in us. We were part of the darkness, and it had to be dealt with. That debt had to be paid. But there's no glory in the cross. It tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, that Jesus endured the shame of the cross that he may inherit, the joy that was promised him by his Father. The glory in what God did in the work of salvation, of redemption, is the resurrection. You've got to walk through the muck and the mire of the cross, the dealing with sin, the removal of sin, the paying of that debt, in order that we can awaken into being born again into the life that was authored through us and given us through Jesus' resurrection. And it's the same way with deliverance ministry. We've got to walk through all of that grossness in order to get to what God really wants to do in us, and that's tell us who he made us to be. Just sat down across from a guy I work with who saw American Sniper uh, last Friday night. His father was a Vietnam veteran and for 30 years afterward was an alcoholic until he drank himself into an early grave. Jimmy just was sitting there sharing about how he couldn't believe the similarities of the young man the subject of the movie was dealing with and how similar it was to what his father had gone through. Jimmy said, I, I wept. The movie was two and a half hours long. I cried for two hours and then I went home, cried for six more hours. He said, my wife and I had to leave the house just so I could talk to her. He said, we sat at the Waterburger parking lot for three hours. He said, I was just sharing with her some of the things that we're dealing with in my heart. And he sat there and he told us on Monday morning, when he was telling us about all of this, that I feel like the person I want to be is the person I'm, I am when I'm here. But I also feel like you guys don't totally know me. Because there's a lot of things from that childhood with my father that I carry that show up when I'm at home or show up in odd places that I don't understand. And I was like, I know who you should talk to. (laughs) Here's a phone number. And got the opportunity to share with him today just some of the stuff that I'm going to share tonight. And the joy of knowing that God has given us a name and that that is the ultimate intent of deliverance ministry allows somebody to sit down and begin to talk about all of the ugly, about the muck and the mire with hope in their heart. It's like your feet and legs are sloshing through all the grossness, but your eyes are cast on the something greater that God has authored for you when all of this that you're in is taken care of. The point of, of deliverance is not just to get rid of the grossness, but to step into the glory that God had intended. We talk so much about names and that God has given us one, but we don't talk a lot about why. Why would he bother to give us a name? We don't ask that question much. When he made us, when he thought of us, why did he think, I need to give this one a name? I need to give each one of these a name. 
Last night as I was studying this phrase, count you worthy of your calling, I just took that, that word calling and went to some of the most obvious calling verses, ones that we go to all the time. And if you want to flip over to Ephesians chapter 1 with me, um, that's kind of where God took me first, and I kind of had a, a light bulb moment, you know, a watershed moment where stuff comes into focus that you never thought of before. Because I've read this verse, 16, 17, and 18 in Ephesians chapter 1. Like, Ephesians is one of my favorite books. I've read it over and over again. And these particular verses, just over and over, because they're so beautifully written in the Revelation, and them is so great. But I had never read them the way I read them last night. And I'll just read them here in the Amplified. I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, for I always pray to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, that he may grant you a spirit of wisdom and revelation, of insight into mysteries and secrets in, in the deep and intimate knowledge of him. But having the eyes of your heart flooded with light, so that you can know and understand the hope to which he has called you. And how rich is his glorious inheritance in the saints, his set-apart ones. Reading it in the King James over and over again, that word is enlightened. Having the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. I never stopped and thought about what does enlightened mean. Enlightened, we use it to talk about like coming to understand something. But what it really means is to enlighten something. To go into a room and turn a light on. I've enlightened that room. I've filled it with light. When I read it, the way the Amplified said, having your heart flooded with light, my mind was filled in an instant with the picture of Paul on the road. Paul's not writing to us some kind of spiritual concept that we need to grab a hold of. Paul is telling us of a very personal event that took place in his life that fully transformed him, that brought him into the life that he was now living, and how he hoped that we would all experience that. So as that kind of dawned on me, that Paul's saying, I hope that you, want, you would, on the road of your life, in this, have this moment where you are flooded with the light of Christ. The heart of your understanding being completely flooded with the light of Christ. Everything that came before is wiped away, and now God can author for you as Paul said it, so that you can know and understand the hope to which he has called you. I started studying Paul's names. Saul means asked for, so it kind of didn't have the weight that I was hoping. I was hoping it was going to say something super important. But then I looked at Paul, and Paul was really telling. The name Paul means small or little, which I thought was interesting understanding Paul's walk after this moment. When the scales come off of Paul's eyes three days later, he spends the rest of his life being humbled, being made smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, finding himself in prison after prison after prison in conditions that Saul would never imagine finding himself in. Saul was a prideful man, full of knowledge, a zealot, in the ways of the Jews, so much so that he was killing Christians. Could you imagine a lower task for Saul than to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles? The lowest possible people that he was 
as a Jew, not supposed to even have any relation live. The name God gave Paul became the mission of Paul's life. God gives us a name because that name is not just so that we can feel better about ourselves. We search for our name sometimes just so I can know what God calls me to lift me. But he calls us a name because that name is our calling. The name he gives us, he calls me son of encouragement. My Aunt Donna was praying over a revival meeting we had a couple of years ago, and she called Dad the next day and said, I heard the Lord calls Jay's name, and he calls him son of Barnabas, which means son of encouragement and prophecy. That felt really great, you know, when, when Dad said, Oh yeah, Donna heard the Lord call your name, and this is what it is. That was a really exciting moment. So much of myself made sense. But that's also the calling of my life. Is that in everything that I do every day, if I'm obeying the Holy Spirit, that is how God will be through me. And it says in 2 Thessalonians that we would be unto every gracious purpose of His goodness. The reason for our name, for God giving us a name, because it is our calling. It's who He wants to be through us. And every calling that He gives, every name that He gives, is a representation of Himself. People should come away from experiencing us as we obey the Spirit, knowing more about the Father. For example, God calls Dad Wisdom. That's His name. When people encounter the Holy Spirit through Dad, they come away knowing that God is wise. That God sees to the deepest places and gives solutions that were unimaginable a second before. God calls my wife, wait for it, seer of beauty. When the Holy Spirit interacts with people through Carrie, they come away knowing that God thinks they're beautiful. That God created something special when He made them. It's the calling on her life, and it's the part of God's heart that He wants to express through her. God gave Jesus the name Jesus Christ. Jesus means Savior. Christ means Anointed One. Anointed Savior. That was the calling of His life. Not just His name, but the calling every day that He awoke to. To the anointing of the Holy Spirit, bringing forth God's miracles, bringing forth God's wisdom and power, and then on that day, laying down His life to become the Savior of mankind. Saving us not just of our sin, but three days later, saving us into a life of victory. But that name was not just Jesus' calling, but a representation of the heart of the Father. Jesus tells us in John chapter 14, says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And if you have known me, you have known the Father. It's the same calling for us. Now, we're not the way, the truth, and the life. We would never <laughs> dream of being anything. That, that was a role only for him. But people should know the Father through us. We're called to be a light set upon a hill. You know, Dad's taught us over and over again, we should want our life to be examined. We should want to be seen by the world. Because how else are they going to know the nature of God? That's quite a task. That the nature and the goodness of God would be evident through my life and through your life. Thank the Lord that He gave us the Holy Spirit. Because it's an impossible task without Him. It's an impossible task to live under the name that He gives each one of us without the Holy Spirit. But as I was reading this last night, so much made sense to me. Why would He give us a name? 
part of it, the calling, is so we know and can put our faith toward it every day. Wake up saying, Holy Spirit, use me. Use me to bring encouragement. Or use me to bring wisdom into the lives of those that you have entrusted to me. Or use me to see the beauty that you have placed in each one, that they would know how special they are in your heart. But also know and live in the fear of the Lord that my life is a representation of who He is. That I carry with me a name that represents the Father's heart. That should put a fear of the Lord in us every day as we awake saying, Help me, Holy Spirit. I need you today. That's the first half. Let's move on to the second half of the verse. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, the second half of verse 11. So we know that God has given us a name and that His gracious purpose of goodness is to reveal His character through us and through the name and the calling or the identity and the purpose He's given us. And then we come to the second half. And with power, that you, with power, may complete in your every particular work of faith. On Sunday, we talked about faith. And there's just a couple of things that I'd like to highlight before we get to the faith without works is dead conversation, which we have to have in light of what Paul's written here. There's some things about faith that if they're not present, faith doesn't really do much for us. Faith requires an aim. Another way to say that is you could place your faith somewhere. Another way to say it, extremely reductive, but Christian goal setting. I don't really like saying goal setting because it implies performance. But faith requires a target. A little note or disclaimer with this. We must be in constant contact and listening to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit speaks to us in all kinds of ways. Visions, dreams, things that we would think to be odd coincidences, songs at perfect times when they're desperately needed. But he also speaks to us through the desires of our own heart. He wrote things in there. That's his voice as much as him saying, do this. The same voice that authored the desires of your heart, the things you'd like to accomplish, the things that you'd like to walk in and see come about. So, and he tells us as much. In in Hebrews chapter 11, the great faith chapter, um, my favorite section of it is Abraham. uh, Let's just flip over and read it. Verse 8, urged on by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and went forth to a place which he was destined to receive as an inheritance. And he went, although he did not know or trouble his mind about where he was to go. Prompted by faith, he dwelt as a temporary resident in the land which was designated in the promise of God, though he was like a stranger in a strange country, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs with him, of the same promise. For he was waiting expectantly and confidently, looking forward to the city which was fixed and has fixed and firm foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham, when he left Ur of the Chaldees, had a promise from the Lord. The Lord spoke to him and said, I will, you go forth from here and I will give you a place. When Abraham left That city going into, I think he stopped at Haran and then went out into the wilderness. There was a place, (laughs) it's funny, it says he didn't know or trouble himself where he was to go. There wasn't a geographic place that Abraham put his faith in. His faith was placed and took aim 
on the target of God's promise to him. A couple of really practical examples that we talked about on Sunday morning. Marriage is probably the biggest faith contract that we get to walk in on the face of this earth. Like I, I stood across from Carrie and promised that I would choose her every day, that she would be the love and the light of my life above all others, that I would forsake all others for her every day of my life, and that that would sustain itself until the day that either I or she or both of us returned to our Father in heaven. You can't get there without faith. That is an agreement of faith that she and I entered into. And every day we wake up and walk and take aim on that place of faith that God would sustain us until that day. Our names is another walk of faith. God calls me son of Barnabas, encouragement and prophecy. I wake up every day saying, God, in faith I walk toward this. Holy Spirit, give me instruction and obedience on the way to fulfilling who you have called me to be. He's given our church prophecy that we would be a people that I still don't understand that we would be the fourth pillar in God's next great move. And that in this place, a tornado of Holy Spirit wind would be released and we would see the fullness, every manifold expression of God's glory in this place. Miracles, healings, deliverance, you name it, speaking in tongues, dancing, leaping, shouting, like it will all be here. The fullness of the Spirit and every fruit of the Spirit. I enter this sanctuary with a question and a faith in my heart every time. Wednesday night, Sunday morning, Sunday evening. Is this the hour I believe and hope that it will be? Because every day I have to set my eyes, my target on that faith. Asking the Lord, give me instruction. Tell me what to do next. How can I be a part of bringing about that Holy Spirit tornado in this place? How can I be a part of the fullness of that promise coming about? Believing every moment that he will do it and hoping that he will do it now. When faith has an aim, faith requires the removal of any other alternative. We are terrible about making other plans, contingencies, the things that we're hoping for. If this doesn't pan out, I, I, I want this to occur, God. I have faith that you can do it. But if it doesn't pan out, then I want to do this over here. If it doesn't pan out, then I've got this safety net. I'm okay. If you don't do what I'm believing and having faith that you'll do, we're terrible about it. But in that same story in Hebrews 11, a little further down, Paul makes this statement. Verse 14, Now these people who talk as though they did show plainly that they are in search of a fatherland, their own country, if they had been thinking with homesick remembrance of that country from which they were immigrants, they would have found constant opportunity to return to it. When we set our eyes in faith on something God has promised or a desire He's spoken in place in our heart that He would accomplish it within us, faith requires that we would remove every other opportunity or safety net or other outcome. In our names, part of the process of walking with God is the process of repentance or sanctification. God has given me a name, an identity, and a purpose, but there are things in me I'm not sin, but there's sin in my members, as the Word tells us, that God doesn't want to be there, that are hindrances to the name that He calls us and the accomplishment of His will through us. He is faithful to walk with us and point those things out to us. And if I have faith in believing that He will be who He says He'll be in my life or who He's called me to be, 
I have to be willing to cut those things away. I can't hold on to them and treat them sometimes like we do. Sometimes I get sad and depressed and lonely. You know, you find this odd comfort in that. When God's called you to be an encourager, this has got to get cut off. You can't cherish the times when you get to be sad and depressed. Those have to be sacrificed in the faith of what God's called you to. In marriage, boy, it's true in marriage. If I have entered into this faith agreement, setting my eyes on that day when Carrie and I have lived a full life together, anything that would hinder that walk of faith has to be cut away in an instant or it will wreak havoc. It will cause so many problems and so much separation between our hearts. Faith requires that all other alternatives be removed for it to have its full power in our life. And I just want to read uh, in James 2, verse 14. What is the use or profit, my brethren, for anyone to profess to have faith if he has no good works to show for it? Can such faith save his soul? And then verse 26. For as the human body apart from the spirit is lifeless, so faith apart from its works of obedience is also dead. Saturday, week ago. Dad came over and he and I set about building a cabinet. He's referenced it a couple of times. It's funny, the wealth of teaching that day has offered me. <laughs> Looking back on it, by the end of the day, it was just a comedy of errors. Just one thing after another. So much so that by the end of the day you're laughing because it's just ridiculous. But with a little separation from that day, just and driving over today thinking about it, That day was actually a very anointed day because a wealth of teaching has kind of erupted in my heart in ways I haven't thought about faith or communicating faith before. So before Dad and I ever went to the store to get plywood, we stood there and kicked around the ideas. And a desire or a dream or a vision or whatever you want to call it of a cabinet emerged. We've got this vision, this dream of, of what could be this this faith, this hope that there could be a cabinet right there next to my washing machine. And so what do we do? We get in the truck and we drive to Home Depot and we find the best pieces of birch veneer, three-quarter inch plywood we can find. Go through a couple of them and then load up the two we like and come back. Set them on the work table. Those two sheets of plywood sitting on my work table, that's faith in this picture. So we've got our faith. We've got our material. The dream we had, the vision that we saw, could be ours. Hebrews 11:1 says, Faith is the substance, or the title deed of the thing that we hoped for. So, I've hoped for this cabinet, and now I've got faith. Here's my faith. This cabinet's going to be real. I've got the materials. It's a, that cabinet, even before it's a cabinet, is a real thing, because I can make a cabinet out of this. And I've taken ownership of my cabinet, even before it's a cabinet. Because I have the faith. Thus begins the real fun. Across this day, two big men in my small garage workshop trying to lay out a cabinet on two four-by-eight sheets of plywood. We had to build a little stand, a little plinth for this thing to sit on. Well, every, my floor is completely unlevel in this 1950s house, so figuring out how to get that level was the first challenge. And then we get the cabinet together. We've got the styles on. It's looking good. Go to stand it up. It is that much too tall. Can't get it in there. 
So we lay it down, and Dad marks it off and just whacks it off with a skill saw. We stand it up, slide it in. It's an inch and a half too wide. It won't fit on the thing that we built. The the washing machine, if we adjusted the base, the washing machine wouldn't go in. So we take it down, we carry it back out into the garage, knock the side off of it, start cutting all of the shelves off so that we can cut an inch and a half out of it. And we get one away from being done, and I'm in my kind of, we're almost done. I set the cord down to kind of help set the guide for the next cut. And when I set the cord down, Dad's setting down the saw, and we cut the cord in half. So it just was a day filled with that. As I walk in my life, trying to come into the fullness of what God has promised that I'm believing for, I'm going to mess up. There's going to be error after error. But I just encourage you, persist in the faith that God has given you to the things that he's called you to. I've never built a cabinet. I have knowledge of building some things. And I could go out there and accomplish those all day long without Dad's help. But so much of what we've done on this, I've had to learn from him. And that cabinet was one of them. Every step of the way, Dad gave me instruction. Every step of the way, Dad said, this is what we need to do next. Every step of the way, my father showed me how to take my faith, my four by eight sheets of three-quarter inch plywood, and allow them to become a cabinet. It's the same with us. I have a dream, I have a vision, a particular work of faith and power, as Paul puts it in 2 Thessalonians, that have got in my heart. And I say, okay, God, I want it. I want it to come about. I get some faith about it, and I aim that faith at the promise he's given me. If we'd have stopped in the middle of building a cabinet and said, I want a rocking chair, we wouldn't have had a cabinet or a rocking chair. We, you know, we laid it out, and once we started cutting on the faith, threw away all other options of what that plywood could become. And so we just, every step of the way, following the instruction of our Father until we got our cabinet built. The thing is, when we get the faith for the cabinet here in our heart, the cabinet's built in heaven. It's done, it's completed, the work is finished. But every step of the way, so that we can learn, so that we grow in wisdom and all the things, all the fruits of the Spirit, Father says, do this next. I'm not going to tell you the next step, let's just do this step. Forget about all that other stuff. Just do this step. Okay, that step's done. Do this step. Until the day comes about when your cabinet's been cut down, it's the right height, it's the right width, and you slide it in and nail it in, and it's beautiful. It works the same way with him. Put your faith, put the dreams, the things in your heart that he's given you, the name he's given you, the purpose and the calling, entrust it to him in faith. And just cast away every other option. This is what it will be. The promises he's given you and your family. There will be no other outcome than the completion and the fulfillment of those promises. And every step of the way, he'll be faithful to give you the instruction. And correct you in your error. Sometimes laugh with you when you mess up. But there will come a day when what you're believing for is standing before you. And you're like, I can't believe it's done. Thank you, Lord, for the work you did. Father, we just thank you that we can be in your house this evening. I just uh, I hope, Lord, that I was able to communicate what you shared with me last night in a way that was clear and concise. Holy Spirit, take anything that was confusing away and uh, the things that were only of you, write them upon our hearts. We love you. We entrust ourselves, our families, our church to you and to your wisdom. 
Holy Spirit, we're unified in our desire and faith to see your fullness in this place. Show us each one our part in it. Encourage us. Give us strength that we may be faithful. Give us wisdom and insight that we may walk in your ways. In Jesus' name, we pray and request these things. Amen.